The music is provided by Calvary Quartet. You can have more of their music at calvaryquartet.com or log on to our website at gospelbaptistchurch.com. Today, I want to share with you a couple verses, just a couple verses of Jesus' words. You say, are Jesus' words any really different than the rest of the Bible? In essence, theologically, no. The Holy Spirit inspired the Bible. And God, the Holy Spirit, inspired from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, last verse. And so we often, you'll hear preachers say, Paul said, or John said, or Peter said, or Jesus said, and, and that's who he used to pen his word. The Bible of itself said in Psalm 119.89, forever uh, the, the word is settled in heaven. And so God's, God's, God's word, if, if it wasn't God's word, it had been corrupted, it had been, it had been changed, it had been moved. And I'm going to tell you, there's been a big old effort. There's been a, the devil has not laid down. From Genesis chapter 3, after the fall, he started on his program to somehow pollute and destroy God's plan. And here we are in uh, 6,000 years, I believe, from that time, and it's still in good stead. God's plan, God's kingdom is in good. In fact, Jesus isn't worried about it at all. He, he's, he's, he says, I go to prepare a place for you. Jesus is not biting his fingernails wondering how this thing's going to come out. He's up there working, preparing a place for his people to live in. Uh, I like to call them mansions, amen. But uh, he, he only, it's been said he can only do what you send ahead. So send ahead, obey what God asks you to do and send ahead so he can prepare a place for you. And I, 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 the little bit I know of God and have gotten to know about God and the creation there declares the glory of God and showeth forth his handiwork, I can tell you heaven is going to knock your socks off. I mean, if this is the fallen earth, and it is, and this is the corrupt, sin-stained earth, and the beauty, the beauty that forces its way through, what will heaven be like? Where there's no hindrance to good. There's no hindrance to right. What will it be like? Well, I have not seen nor ear heard, neither has entered into the heart of man. Well, God has prepared for them that love him. We're not able to conceive and put the thoughts together because we don't have any, any, relate, any way to relate to them. But I'll tell you one thing. The good things that God has prepared, he also has a place called hell prepared for those who reject him. Now, originally it was prepared for the devil and his angels. The Bible, I've heard preachers say that God never wanted anybody, no human being ever to go to hell. Hell was prepared for the original rebellion of the devil and his angels. 
But if you reject Jesus, you follow the devil in his rebellion and have to go where his people go and where he eventually will be cast. Place called hell. Take your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. Some of the most sombering, challenging verses of the whole, I think, the whole gospel of Jesus' words. My wife and I have spent many of uh, time speaking about these verses. I mean, I we talk about them. We, we, we throw them back and forth. And I like to use her as my soundboard. Enter ye in at the straight gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction. And here is maybe one of the saddest phrases of the, of the New Testament. And many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life. And maybe another sad statement here next to the other one. And few there be that find it. I've asked the question of a Sunday school class. I've surveyed people through the years. How many is a few? Well, I've said if there's a hundred of something, if you have a hundred, if I have a hundred Krispy Kreme, and I say to Brother Tom Gillespie, you can have a few. Now, his definition of a few at that point may be a little different than my definition of a few. I'm thinking like three. What, were you, what would you say would be a few Krispy Kreme out of 100? I hope you didn't hear that. 33. But anyway, uh, it wouldn't be that many. But it'd be a few, a few. Maybe 10, maybe 8, maybe 12, maybe, you know, but you're not going to get too many or you're going to go past few. Amen. Imagine a huge, spacious, smoothly paved super slab. I've been on them. Some of you have been out to L.A., some of you have been out to other parts of the, of the big cities of our country. They have these super slabs. I mean, they got these 10-lane, 12-lane super slabs that they've paid. And they're so they're laser-cut, smooth, and, and broad, and easy to travel. But imagine now going to a place in North Carolina called Highway 129. You better pray you don't accidentally get on that road. Especially if you're in your car. God forbid if you're in your motor home. I saw a poor soul in the North Carolina mountains get make a wrong turn thinking it was, because on the map it looks like a straight line from here to there. Problem is you need a bigger map with topography because that road really is all the way over to that other city. And it actually takes took me, and not very far, it took me and my wife, my wife and I, two and a half hours to get just a short distance. It seemed like a short distance, two and a half hours. Because it was switchbacks, if you're familiar with switchbacks, that means you're when you turn the corner, you can see your tail. 
That's a switchback. That means when you go around a corner, you can almost see the back of your car. I mean, it just turns 100. Some of them actually do more than a switchback. They go around and go under themselves, which is a more than a 360. I mean, it's all the way over. Wow. I've done a lot of motorcycle riding up in that area. I love to ride a, a, a 11 miles. There's 318 curves, many of them switchbacks. 318 curves and 11 miles. It's called the dragon or the dragon's tail, the tail of the dragon. It's Highway 129, and imagine with me uh, getting onto that road. Uh, it, it, is, it is uneven. It's in places rough. It's obstacle-laden, small and narrow. It has many twists, many turns, some of them vertical, some of them horizontal, all every angle. You take a corner. When you take a sharp corner this way, you think the road's supposed to lean this way. No, the road leans this way. Taking a, uh, a sharp corner, 180 degree or more corner, uh, when it's already leaning out to throw you out. In a, brother, that's life-threatening, white-knuckle driving. I can tell you that. Brother Tom Cronin, which, by the way, is not here, and I, I hope you're praying for Tom. His son died last week. He is on his way back. Brother Tom Cronin and I spent many a time together, and he took us to a place. Brother, Brother Moon was a brand-new motorcycle driver. I was fairly... I was reintroducing myself to motorcycle riding again since I was 15 years old. And so we went to this one place, and he told us about this curve. He said, now there's this curve you come up to. He says, whatever you do, don't slow down, because if you slow down, the curve is on such a, it's around like this with the angle on the wrong way. He says, you cannot stand up on this curve. You will roll down the curve into the other lane as these cars are coming. He says, whatever happens, keep your motorcycle RPMs up. Do not let it go down because if you somehow kill that thing, it's going to just fall over. You're going to slide down the curve into the ditch. I was scared. I'm flat out scared. I got a thousand pound motorcycle. I had an M109 Suzuki, 1800 cc's, 129 horsepower, uh, about 900, about 1,000 pounds, over 1,000 loaded. And a big old wide tire on the back. Didn't corner well. I knew it didn't corner well. You had to force it around the corners. And I said to him, I said, this sounds like Cronin's curve of death. And that's what we named it. Tom Cronin's Curve of Death. And Brother, Brother Moon, after he got done describing it, Moon said, I ain't going. And I'm not going. I said, we got to go, Brother Moon. We got to go. I ain't, I'm not going. I'm not going to die over this. I got a wife and family and stuff. I ain't going to die over this. I said, we got to go, brother. We got to go. You'll never live it down. We'll call you sissy boy. Put pink stuff on your motorcycle. We'll wonder what size dress you want to wear. You have got to go. It's a male thing. So he says, okay, I'm going. I'm going by it. He wasn't crying. I mean, he wasn't crying. Yeah, I didn't notice he was crying or not. But anyway, Brother Tom, he had a death wish. He's in his 70s. He don't care. I'm in my 60s. I'm, I'm about where I don't, I'm getting there. So he's, we take off and we go up this place. And here comes Cronin's curve of death. We go around that thing, and man, there's no, sure enough, there's a car coming the other way. Tell me no. 
I got this big old Suzuki at low RPMs, and I'm put, trying to put it up, but can't put it. And I, I wrestle that beast around that corner, and I, as you know, I lived. As you know, he lived. We made it up to the top of the mountain. We sat there. We rejoiced. We had a party. We were now men. We had done our rite of passage. I say all that to you to hope to drill into your mind what this, what this narrow path is really looks like. This is a scare. This narrow path is not an easy way. It is a horrible, hard, difficult, trouble-laden way. That's the narrow path that he described in there. But what does the narrow path lead to, folks? Life. Eternal life. What does the broad, easy, super slab lead to? Destruction. Death. Hell. Separation from God for all eternity. God is good. Anything that's good is God. If you get away from God, you will eventually get away from anything defined as good. And so hell, by definition, is absence of good. And it is everything that is defined as bad that you could define and you don't even know to define. That's what hell represents in the Bible. And it is the absence of God, which is all good, all real beauty, is God. Nobody, nobody in their right mind, nobody in their right mind. Hell's angels or Ohio outlaws never would want to go to a place called hell if they were allowed to see it and smell it for 30 seconds. The toughest bad boy out there would cry like a little child if he was allowed to go to hell for 30 seconds. I guarantee you. There ain't no tough guys when it comes to hell. And Jesus spoke more about it. Why? Because he does not want you to go there. He had come and been manifested as the Son of Man, the Son of God, so he could specifically pay for your sins on the cross, was accepted by God, proven by the resurrection. He was raised for your justification, that is, to declare you not guilty guilty of all of your sins have them laid upon himself Christ died for every sin that was ever committed but you must believe by faith you must believe and it can't be a temporal belief it can't be a careless belief the sacrifice merits a serious belief you say amen to that not a casual belief, not a temporary belief, not a, oh, well, I believe. You know, you hear the, oh, Jesus, my buddy. I was out there smoking, drinking, cussing, acting ugly, violating every, every rule that God's laid down is right and wrong. Jesus ain't your buddy, brother. Eventually, he's going to be your judge. Having violated him and spit upon him and done despite to the spirit of grace, he will not be your buddy. But this rural-minded crowd in the setting that this was said would have understood what it meant to travel mountain roads. They would have understood what a little narrow one-path road looked like. They would have understood that it would have difficult travel. So this picture 
to them was as clear as crystal. They, the Romans had built fabulous roads. In fact, that's what uh, facilitated the spread of the gospel after Jesus was resurrected and the disciples were dispersed. They were able to go on those Roman roads. I've actually walked on a few of them. And, and they, they have plaques in them, you know, built by the Romans such and such a time. And Phenomenal. They were, they were based, the base of them was all rock, and then they would plaster, uh, actually use cement, because the Romans were the ones that actually invented or figured out cement. And they were good with using cement, and they plastered those things with cement, and those things were smooth, probably as our roads were. They'd travel those roads, they had broad roads. So, in the mind of the person listening to these two verses, where Jesus said, broad is the way that leads to destruction. The easy way in this life leads to destruction. But the hard way, if you choose to follow me, if you choose to believe in me, you're going to find it's a narrow way. It has obstructions. It has pain. It has trouble. It has suffering. But if you stay on the narrow way and don't give up and believe, it'll eventually lead you to a place called life. Heaven. And let me say this, all of the joy of heaven is going to outweigh any amount of trouble you had on the narrow road. When you get to heaven, you're going to think, narrow road, did I have trouble? Was I on a narrow road? Because the joys that are set before you are going to so overcome the memory of the few days of pain or few years of pain or few years of trouble and trial because you would do desire to obey God over man. You won't even think about it. Paul said they're not even worthy to be compared one to another. This verse, this verse has always caught my attention. It has always grabbed me. I want to miss the wrath of God that all my sins deserve. How about you? I don't want to answer for my sin. I've done some horrible things. I've lied. I'm, I'm a fisherman. Fisherman, don't ask a fisherman where he caught his fish. He ain't going to tell you. Don't ask a fisherman how many fish he caught or how big they were and everything. You know, a tendency of fisherman is to lie. But I've lied. I'm ashamed of myself. I've lied. I've cheated. I've promoted myself when I shouldn't have. I've been cruel. All you got to do is ask my wife. I've, been, I, I've, I've verbally judged others while overlooking my own faults. I hate that. I've even said blasphemous things against God. I've used God's name in vain. I've blasphemed God, friends, enemies, and acquaintances, and people I didn't know. I have had sexually illicit thoughts and scenarios that I've allowed to travel through my mind and even entertain me. I've absolutely been selfish, full of pride, full of boastings and self-promotion. I am a sinner that needs a Savior. And that's why I came to Jesus. Because those things I did just before I was 18 years old. It didn't take very long. Before I was five years old, I'd already lied, cheated, hated. Wait a minute, five years old. How do I know? I had brothers. 
And they, the, we, I used to get when fights with my brothers at a young age, four years old, five years old, and call them names and do all kinds of things. When I got in my Sunday school class and the woman talked about my sins being wicked and vile, I was deeply convicted by the Holy Spirit. And he, she said, Jesus died for me, was buried and rose again the third day to save me and would forgive me of my sins. If I would buy, put my faith in him, that made sense to me. And I said, yes, Jesus, please take my sins, forgive me of my sins, and be my Savior. Do you believe an old little five-year-old kid had enough sense to be saved? I do. Especially when Jesus says, except you become as a little child, you'll not enter the kingdom of heaven. The narrow road leads to heaven. The broad way leads to hell. Christian life's not going to be easy. You, you may say, well, I hope, that, uh, I hope that when I came to Christ, things were going to get easier. <clears throat> things are going to be more comfortable as a Christian. I was going to have a less trouble life. Now, I've known people come to Jesus for those reasons. They are, they are quickly disappointed. There was a guy that got saved here a while back out of a really hard life. He was an old Vietnam vet. I remember him well. And and, I've been through all kinds of things in Vietnam, messed him up a little bit. He came to Jesus, made a really good profession of faith, said, I want to be saved. About four or five weeks later, he came to me and says, I'm not going to be a Christian anymore. I didn't know you did that. I didn't know you turned that thing on. He said, I'm not going to be a Christian anymore. I said, why? He said, man, ever since I got saved, things have gone south. I mean, South, by the way, I take that with resentment living in the South. But anyway, things have gone bad since I got saved. I mean, things have just, I mean, mean, nothing's going right. Man, I was better off before I was saved. I said, you were going to hell with no hope. That's better off. See, he wasn't looking at that. He was looking at the now and now. If you get saved for God to change the now and now and make everything broad and easy, Is that what these verses say? Jesus said you'll get off the broad way if you get saved. And you'll get on the narrow way. You'll get off I-75 and you'll get on the dragon. And trust me when I tell you, it'll be a wild ride. (laughs) It's been a wild ride and it's going to be a wild ride. First, you, you know, if it isn't one thing, it's another. How many of you have heard that statement? You know, you get over cancer, you break your leg. You finish, you get out of your cast, you, you, you get a rash. You know, if it isn't one thing, it's another. And then when all that's over, you get an abscess tooth and have to have your tooth pulled. And that don't happen, you look in the mirror and half your hair is gone. And if that's not the worst, the other half's gray. It's a narrow way. It's a narrow way. It's not going to be an easy way. Get ready. Boy, you get, you get saved so things. And this, I hate to say it, but Joel Osteen and all them people on there, out there are heretics. They are not preaching the whole truth. I don't know about you, but my mother told me when I speak a half truth, it's a whole lie. I don't think you've got to be real intelligent to figure out if you don't say the whole truth, you're speaking a whole lie. 
Because when you get out there, and, and it was not, by the way, what Joel Osteen's doing is no different than what Jim Baker did and all the rest of them. It's health and wealth gospel. Basically, they, they, they take the part of the Bible that tells you you're to move away from sin in the world and, 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 and move towards God and obey Him. They take that out and they basically put in there, God wants you healthy, He wants you wealthy, He wants you, he wants you smarter, He wants you better, and he just, He's for you, and if God be for you. And they take some of the Bible, of course they do. That gives them their credibility. But they don't teach you this verse, which are Jesus' words. No, they don't want to teach that. Because that may drive you away. Because, but it won't really drive you away because if you understand you're a sinner unable to save yourself, you won't be driven away. Because until you're really lost, you don't even need a Savior. Before you talk to somebody about Jesus and His mercy and His grace, you better find out whether they even think they need a Savior, whether they even believe they have any sin. I talked to a person not long ago, and they said, I've never sinned. I thought they must have misunderstood what I asked. I said, are you sure? What you... No, I've never sinned. I said, yes, you have. No, I haven't. I said, you did just right now. Got them mad. There's four words I want to quickly go over with you this morning to help you to make the narrow road. Number one is the word admit. Admit. We need to admit. No one, no one gets to the straight gate and the narrow way without admitting that they're sinners and having violated the law of God. Romans chapter 5 verse 12 says, Wherefore as by one man, that's Adam, sin entered into the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men for all have sinned. If you're here this morning, you've sinned, and you've sinned in a lot of different directions. Just like I went through a little list here of sins, every one of you out there has done the same things that I just mentioned. We have that in common that we are sinners by nature. You don't have to teach a three-year-old to lie. You don't have to teach a five-year-old to steal. You don't have to teach a child to be mean and throw a fit. You don't have to teach them to scream and yell and not to scream and yell when they're not supposed to. They'll do it. Why? Because we have a nature which is rebellious and self-willed and self-directed and doesn't want anybody else to tell them anything about it. I'm an old 60s hippie. They got born again. I know what rebellion is. I like in Luke chapter 18 where Jesus sees this old a uh, priest come in, and he comes into the temple, and he said, Oh, Lord, I thank God that, no, that I'm not like other men. I'm not like, I'm not like them Gillespies. I pay tithe of everything I have, and I do incense. I pray twice a week, and I fast, and I do good things to God, and then he said, then he said here, look in, look in uh, Luke chapter 18, verse 13, and a publican comes in. And him standing afar off would not lift so much as his eyes toward heaven. He, a publican, now is a tax collector. He's an IRS guy, but he's worse than that. He's a cheating IRS guy. He's an, he's an extorter. And he's working for the Romans, which are the occupying army of the day. He's, he's as bad as you get. So the publican comes into the temple, and he stands, 
far off, won't lift his eyes toward heaven. He smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus' words in verse 14 may shock you. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified. That's the publican. Rather than the religious guy who comes in. For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and everyone that humbleth himself shall be exalted. You must, before you ever even get to the edge of the straight gate, you and I have to come to a place where we admit we are sinners unable to save ourselves. Do you admit that? Do you know that this morning? Or are you still clinging? Like one old woman I stopped by going door to door one day, and she said, I'm not bad. I've never done anything wrong. Son, she was a little sweet-looking old lady. I've never done anything wrong. I said, oh, yes, you have. I said, I'm around a lot of little old ladies. Number two, you must submit. No one gets saved without honestly and sincerely, internally and truthfully submitting to God. You admit you're a sinner. You submit to God's plan of salvation. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation. The Holy Spirit comes by makes you realize you're a sinner unable to save yourself. You admit, I am a sinner, like that publican. I am a sinner. I'm ashamed. By the way, he wouldn't put his eyes towards heaven because he had some shame. Oh, that God would give us a good old dose of shame again. He was ashamed to look up to heaven because of the things he knew he had done against God in secret and publicly. And he came to the salvation provided and submitted. God be merciful. God, that identifies who the Savior is. Be merciful, identifies his ability to forgive a sinner who I am. You must submit to God. Not sorry for being caught. Not sorry for the punishment. But sorry that he hurt God. Godly sorrow. All sin is actually anarchy. Sin is getting in God's face. Sin is saying to God he is not what he says he is. He is not good. Sin is saying to God that he is a liar. Sin is rebellion in its essence. But God says that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Do you believe that? I did it. I believe salvation has to do with you actually speaking the words. The old publican said verbally, outright, God be merciful to me, a sinner. I believe people say, well, I think religion is a private matter, and I don't tell anybody about it. You may be surprised someday that you're not saved when you face God. Because God said, if you'll confess me before men, that's in Matthew, same book here, Matthew chapter 10, verse 32. If you'll confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father, which is in heaven. I believe as a Savior, you must admit that you're a sinner. You must submit. Thirdly, we must commit. Commit. I like the statement here by a man, I believe his name is uh, Phillips, uh, J.B. Phillips. Here's what he says. Christianity is an invitation to true living. Its truth is only endorsed by actual experience. When a man becomes committed Christian, 
he sooner or later sees the falsity, illusions, and limitations of the humanistic, geocentric way of thinking. He becomes aware of the greatly enhanced meaning of life and greatly heightened personal responsibility. Beneath the surface of things, as they seem to be, he can discern a kind of cosmic conflict in which he now is personally and consciously involved. He has ceased to be in life a spectator or a commentator and a certain and becomes a certain small part of the battlefield. He also becomes aware of the forces that are ranged against him. J.B. Phillips. When you get committed, you begin to start dying to self and living to Christ. How do you find a committed Christian? He is selfless and full of Jesus. He wants Jesus to be the number one in his life. So have you admitted, have you submitted, have you committed and asked Jesus to save you and then serve him and give your life? And fourthly, and the best part about this whole thing to stay away from the broad way and go to the narrow way is to transmit. Transmit. Have you and are you willing then to do the most, the, the most critical part of our salvation is to transmit. So you admit, you submit, you commit, and then at the last you obey and transmit. What is that? Reproduction. The best thing, when I find new believers, people do get newly saved. What do they want to do? They want to go tell somebody. Hey, man, you call your buddies up. You call your friends up. You call your relatives. Probably start with your relatives. I got saved. My life's been changed. God's come in my heart. I admitted. I, I submitted. I committed. I'm on board for God. And you, you start going around and telling them. That's why, the, that's why the very heartbeat of a local church has to be transmitting the good news that we've received. Make sense? We're transmitters. We're out there telling people. So what are you, how do you define the ministries of Gospel Baptist Church? Transmission, man. We're out here transmitting through the bus, transmitting door to door yesterday, transmitting in the, in the nursing homes, transmitting on the, at the flea market, transmitting in every, every way we can. Even the mother-daughter banquet was a transmission. Well, they heard it was a great success also. Where are you? The Bible says go in the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Do it. Jesus said, the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. The Bible says in 2 Peter 3, 9, it's not God's will that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. God wants us to go, go, go. Let me ask you this. Since you have admitted, since you've submitted, since you've committed, have you been transmitting? That may be the secret to why you're struggling as a Christian. Until you get to the place where you get a ministry to transmit the good news that you've been born again, you've been, at, you've been brought into the family of God, that God has forgiven you of all your sins, until you do that, you're not fulfilling the full call of God upon your life. That's why we, we at the gospel here give all kinds of opportunities and ways, and we're into new ways of possibly getting the gospel out there and allowing you to get the gospel out there to someone else. Are you growing as a Christian? I had a well-meaning but not well-informed young man come to me years ago. And he said, you know, preacher, I just don't, I think I'm, my growth, I'm stunned here at the gospel. My growth is stunned. I just can't go further. 
as a Christian. I said, you can't go further. He said, no, I just don't feel like I can go further. I think I, he had just taken one correspondence course from a university, a Christian university. He took a correspondence course uh, on, on real deep theology. And he was so enamored by the educative terminologies and high-sounding words and complexities that he said, I believe I've, I've got to go. Now, there's nothing wrong with going to college, by the way. I went there. I think it's a good thing to do. But do you folks understand something this morning? Like I told him, son, the local Bible-believing church of Jesus Christ is the end of all that schooling. You don't go here to go there. You go there so you can come back here and then you can do what we all have been doing for years. This is what maturity is all about. It's being an active, vital, interested, contributing member of a local, fundamental, independent, Bible-believing church that is out there trying to transmit the best news that ever came by our lips or by our ears, that Jesus Christ died for your sins, He was buried, and He rose again the third day to save you. That's what we're to do. I said to the old boy, this is the end of all learning, the end of all your education, the end of all your fine-tuning, what you see going on here at the gospel is the most mature level of Christianity you're going to find anywhere. This is what we're all about, amen? It's about being here. Now, I believe that you can go away to school. You can increase your knowledge. You can increase some of your wisdom. You can, you can do that. But ultimately, what is the goal of that? is to get into the fundamental Bible-believing local church somewhere and contribute to that work. Let me say this. If you're a Christian, not an active, a vital, a contributing partner, holding hands together with the people that are constructing the local Bible-believing church, then you are not where God wants you to be yet. And I'm not saying that because I'm a preacher. And I'm not saying that for any of my own, but I'm saying that because the Bible. That's what, Jesus died to establish the local churches all over the world. That was his mechanism to transmit the gospel. Now, God does the saving. I don't save anybody. I transmit, he saves. People hear, they respond, they get saved. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God, Amen. So all we got to do is keep it up, keep it up, keep it up, keep it up, keep it up. Admit, submit, commit, and then transmit by the grace of God. That is the narrow way. This local church ministry right here is the narrow way. And trust me, I haven't been a pastor here for a while and haven't been in the ministry since I practically got out of school. In fact, in school and out of school years ago. It's been a twisty, turny, hard, narrow, pressing, irritating, stressful, white-knuckle experience. I wouldn't, I wouldn't replace it for the world. When I got off of the dragon and I was alive, and Brother Moon, it was time you and I went up the dragon. We thought we were never going to be seen of again. 
The first time we did the dragon, we heard, well, remember on our way to the dragon that we stopped by a motorcycle shop and the guy said, don't do it, man. Don't do it. He said, people get killed in the dragon every weekend. There's two, three kids go over the edge. And by the way, it is just, there's no, there's no, it's just off the edge down the way. Trees everywhere. Rock on one side, trees on the other. He said, don't do it. Remember that guy? He's, man, I had so much fear in me. I was grabbing a hold of that thing like it was my, I said, we're doing it. Tom said, oh, we're doing it. If I die on a motorcycle, that's a good thing. He has a death wish. I told you he had a death wish. I said, well, I can't let Tom do it without me because then he'll tell me I'm, I'm a girly boy and a sissy boy the rest of my life. I got to do it. We're doing it. Man, we got done with that. We got up to that, that motel at the top of the dragon there, and we just almost run around and said, Woo, we are men now. And buddy, when we get to the end of this old world, you live for Jesus and trust God and white-knuckle it all out, you're getting on the other side, you're going to rejoice together with the rest of the saints who made it through the narrow way. You'll be able to wear your patch. I rode the dragon. Father, we thank you for your mercy to us today. Pray that we'd understand the truth in the narrow way. Pray, oh God, that you'd give us wisdom. You would, you would uh, hinder the evil one as he tries to block everything that's been said here this morning. Tries to block the invitation. Tries to snatch the seed. There could be one here without Jesus that never really has come to God admitting they're a sinner. Never come to God submitting to his plan of salvation. Never come to God and committing them, committed themselves to it. Why don't today be the day? Maybe there could be some in this room that have been contemplating this whole thing. You're not satisfied with the way life's going, and you won't be. The easy way, the, the broad way leads to destruction. Life just gets more complicated as they go on their way. It ends in facing God. Will you come and ask Jesus to save you today? Will you let us know, maybe take you in the back room, show you in a few minutes what the gospel is, one-to-one, the privacy of a room back there, show you how we got saved, transmit how we got saved so you can get saved. You can. Jesus is calling to you today. He's calling. Maybe you're as a Christian, you've been out of the game. You kind of checked yourself out of the game. You checked yourself out of the local church. You checked yourself out of, out of being a vital part of it. Don't do it. Because local church is not any one man's church. It is Jesus Christ's church. He said, I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Be part of his work. In Jesus' name we pray.
sun.